This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 118. Today we continue our discussion of Christ and culture with a look at politics. Christ the Center is listener-supported, and we thank everyone who helps to make this program possible. To read more about how you can contribute, please visit reformedforum.org slash donate. Welcome to Christ the Center, your weekly conversation of Reformed theology. This is episode number 118, and my name is Camden Busey. We have another special episode lined up for you today because we're continuing our discussion of Christ and culture. Our hope here is to provide an enlightening discussion on the subject. Now, it is a much debated topic for those of you who are familiar with it, and it has several varying approaches, even from within the Reformed community. And our goal in the way we have structured this project is to present you with several different perspectives that represent different strands of Reformed thinking. And as we begin, let me remind you that the format of these episodes deviates a bit from our typical Christ the Center format. First and foremost, this is a debate. And as a result, the inclusion of the views represented in this debate should not be understood as an endorsement from Reformed Forum. So we encourage you to listen intently and critically, but we trust that you will benefit from the content that we have here today. So let me quickly introduce our four participants again. First, we have Bill Dennison, who is Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies at Covenant College. He's also Professor of Apologetics and Systematic Theology at Northwest Theological Seminary. He's the author of The Young Boltman, Context for His Understanding of God, 1884 to 1925 as well as Paul's two-age construction and apologetics. Secondly, we have Dr. Daryl G. Hart. Dr. Hart teaches at Eastern University in St. David's, Pennsylvania, as well as Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He has authored many books as well and articles, including A Secular Faith, Why Christianity Favors the Separation of Church and State, Deconstructing Evangelicalism, and Defending the Faith, J. Gresham Machen and the Crisis of Conservative Protestantism in America. Dr. Hart is an elder in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and he serves on the OPC's Committee on Christian Education. Our third participant is Doug Wilson. Doug Wilson is pastor at Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, and faculty member at New St. Andrews College. Mr. Wilson has written many books and articles, including The Deluded Atheist, Heaven Misplaced, Christ's Kingdom on Earth, and Letter from a Christian Citizen. He also appears in the documentary film Collision, documenting his debates with anti-theist Christopher Hitchens on their promotional tour for the book, Is Christianity Good for the World? And finally, our fourth participant is Nelson Klosterman. Dr. Klosterman teaches at Mid-America Reformed Seminary. He also offers weekend seminars on Christian marriage and family, Christian medical ethics, and Christian cultural worldview. He has produced video materials for training elders and deacons, and he writes frequently for Christian Renewal. Dr. Klosterman has translated The Ten Commandments and Responsible Conduct by Dutch theologian Jay Dauma, and he also serves as co-editor of the Mid-America Journal of Theology. This is round one of three separate rounds of recording. Rounds two and three will be opportunities for each participant to criticize the opposing views. But this first round involves each participant answering a series of standard questions simply to orient each view within the overall landscape. Thank you for listening to this installment of our Christ and Culture discussion. Visit reformedforum.org for more information and a place to comment and interact with other listeners. So without further ado, let us begin our discussion on politics. first panelist, Bill Dennison, answering the question, what is the applicability of the Mosaic Law to the Church now? I would say, I would say that the, the ap- application of the law to the Church now uh, follows the, um, the three aspects of the law, um, and that is that we understand the law and with respect to the consciousness of the restraining of sin, uh, that is extremely important to our Reformed heritage. 
uh, that is mapped out clearly in, in our confessional standards um, in the sense that um, we are that the Ten Commandments are exposited in the confessional standards. Uh, obviously, they are a tutor to drive us to Christ, the law is. And, uh, and then thirdly, uh, the third use of the law, that it, it, which is also underlined, uh, obviously, uh, with, um, um, with the confessional standards of why it has such discussion, interpretation, and application, um, it is still relevant uh, today, even in light of, of the coming and the, and the passive and active obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ. The ceremonial laws fulfilled in Christ. The aspect of the civil law has has expired, um, and um, I know there's been great discussion on the genuine equity thereof. But nevertheless, uh, I would I would uh, hold to that position as as well uh, with respect uh, with the professional standards. And of course, I've already uh, discussed the aspect of the moral mm-hmm. law. Absolutely. Uh, so what would you see then as the role of the Ten Commandments in relation to the civil government? Uh, I do not find a, a mandate in Scripture, nor do I find a mandate in confessional standards uh, to understand the, um, the moral law as that which is a mandate uh, for the civil government. I want to be careful here, though, uh, because I want to be, because at the same time as I say that, uh, I want to reserve the the um, aspect of the providence of God in relationship to the civil government, uh, to His providence, to His sovereignty, which means for me, and the key for me is the is at least beginning again solidly within the redemptive historical context of Babel and the formation of the nations, that uh, God allows the nations and brings the nations into existence, uh, obviously, toward, so to work out his purpose and his glory, even with respect to, uh, to the creation and to the various governments that exist in the creation. And, and in that way, he brings to mind upon the nations in some way, I would argue, a kind of relative consciousness uh, with respect to common grace uh, uh, concerning uh, his existence and morality. I'm thinking here, obviously, uh, that, um, of the Romans 119 passage and the Romans 213 through 16 passage. Um, and then, in that way, uh, he will he uses a his own means to bring the consciousness of his deity and the consciousness of moral uh, truth uh, into the creation, even in some ways into civil governments, so that the evil is restrained, things don't become as evil as they can be. Uh, and governments are set really against governments, as I understand Calvin's section there, to see the balance of powers until his final justice is executed upon the nations at the consummation. But it has already begun in Christ in terms of the cross as well. But uh, that's where I would go at this point. We got another question here. What is the proper role of a Christian who is also a politician? I think. I think again. Uh, I think the um, in this area. I think. I think twenty three two in the confession sort of gives us a directive. First of all, I, I want to say often <laughs> my position when I talk about uh, Christ in culture. Um, in the public arena, uh, some people seem to get the idea that I don't want Christians in, politi- in politics. That's absolutely false. I do. But the point there being is, um, in my judgment, the politician isn't there uh, to, um, uh, to transform the culture, transform the political realm. He is there in terms of his servants' to the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of Kings, and he continues to, um, 
to provide uh, as uh, the best he can from his perspective uh, into the into the context of politics, uh, roles of justice, and um, and uh, he's interested, of course, in in promoting peace in any way that he can. Um, and uh, the genuine uh, the genuine uh, kind of almost human human piety that he can as well. Um, that's probably somewhat ambiguous here, but nevertheless, um, I don't see it as, as a mandate in a pluralistic society of, of, Christian, of a Christian um, kingdom, a theocratic kingdom, but I do see it as a, as a means by which he is trying to uphold the basic relative goodness of things, and he does live in the political round with the consciousness of his heavenly calling into the present into the present world but he understands in that context he understands in that context he will be a sufferer in that context uh, that is that it that will be the designation of his existence as he attempts uh, to work uh, with those who are secular and those who are pagan in the same context. What is the responsibility of a Christian as a voter? I don't think there is, uh, that. I do not think uh, a Christian has a mandate with respect to consciousness uh, that the Christian must vote in every given election. I know that uh, will, in many ways, uh, uh, always alarm people when I say that. Uh, and uh, my own, I think there is a, there is the freedom of consciousness there. Um, I do believe that the Christian, every time, for the most part, in in, in most elections, in the, in terms of the Christians' environments in the world, uh, they go in and and vote uh, for the lesser of evils. <laughs> um, uh, but I do not believe that a Christian is bound by conscience, by virtue of their conscience, that they must vote in every election. Uh, they could see uh, an example for, uh, you know, I'm giving, let me give the most obvious example here. And that is, if, if you have no candidate, uh, in, uh, on a, in a situation of election in the United States that is not, uh, is, is, is for uh, what the political correct language now, pro-choice, uh, and they're only for that. I, I can understand why a Christian would say, I don't have anyone to vote for, and before my conscience before God, I cannot vote for anybody in this particular election or in, on on this particular office. Uh, if that is the Christian, if that is the person's conscience, sure. I think their conscience has the conscience. We have to have a a position of Christian liberty of conscience on this issue uh, uh, with with going into the booth. Related to that, uh, what would you see as the responsibility? Uh, of a Christian who may be a military officer or maybe enlisted in the military, they go. They can go in, and the example given here, and I don't have any problem with that, is the uh, is the example often given is the centurion and um, and in scripture, and um, and uh, so I had no problem with that person serving. However, the person must always keep. There, that even the Christian that serves must have must have a um, understanding in that case still that he is a citizen of heaven primarily, and in terms of where his residence is as a pilgrim on earth, uh, he can uh, with good conscience go ahead and serve in the military. Uh, uh, in the in in this world as well, mm. um, understanding that uh, again the role is hopefully um, <laughs> to say uh, use even Augustinian language to be somewhat consistent here <laughs> to somehow at least maintain the relative peace uh, in the world. 
and uh, and that uh, that I see as as no problem in terms of their conscience. I will underline here, interestingly, uh, at least in the present experience of myself in the last number of years with the Iraq War, and that I have had a number of phone calls from men who I have been praying for in relationship to the churches that I have served um, uh, as an elder, uh, that uh, their issue often has been is that um, is that it's very difficult as a Christian to serve within our own military because mm-hmm. of the ethics and the morality that exists within our own military mm-hmm. uh, with people. So he says it's, a bit, it's almost as if the bigger challenge in serving is the day-to-day life with, uh, with our own uh, comrades than, so to speak, uh, in battle, than the enemy itself that is out there. And I think in some ways that gives you a good picture of really the issue that some and, and the struggles that our, our own Christian men who serve in the military, no matter what country they would be in, uh, whether under what government they would be in, is the, the angst that they go through as a Christian believer. heart on the present applicability of the Mosaic law to the church. Well, I you know, I would I would follow the distinctions that the confession makes between or among the the um, ceremonial, judicial and and moral components of the law and I know there are people who find those categories um, clumsy or arbitrary, but um, I actually think they're useful. So the, the the moral component or the general equity of other things, I do think are um, are applicable to the church. And I'm a firm believer in the third use of the law, the reform view on that. And so, the uh, if in a worship service you want to use the Decalogue before the confession of sin as a way of convicting us of us of our sin, or if you want to use it as I've seen it used in Reformed churches after the the declaration of pardon as as a an affirmation of the the way that Christians are to, to live their lives, and this is a summary of God's uh, moral or God's will. Um, I'm comfortable with that, so I think it's still applicable. I'm not, you know, someone who, uh, even though I can appreciate some of the things that Lee Irons tried to do when he was was making his case about the law, um, I'm still very comfortable with the Westminster Standards treatment of the law. So in that sense, I feel like the way the Westminster Standards regard the law in the chapter on the law, plus the way that they use the Decalogue in the catechisms, I find to be generally um, comfortable. Though you look at the larger catechism and the various sins included, (laughs) I often don't even know what some of those sins are. But anyway. Would you see any difference between how the Mosaic Law applies to the church now versus how it applies to the culture in general? Yes. I, I do think that the, that the God's law is, is um, as part of his revealed will, is, is the church's. So um, I, I do, th- especially the, the case with... Um, the, the Decalogue, it seems to me, a lot and a lot of people in the religi- in the religious right want the Decalogue in public schools on the walls or courtrooms or whatever, and there standing out right before them is this fourth commandment on the the Lord's Day, when in, in increasingly lots of Christians, including Reformed Christians, unfortunately, don't observe the Lord's Day. So there is there is a kind of a liturgical churchly aspect to the to the um, Ten Commandments, the first table about blasphemy and idolatry and taking the Lord's name vain, etc., um, that it seems to me is is applicable to a worshiping community, and therefore it looks to me like even the, the Decalogue is really written for a, a worshiping community, 
which Israel, of course, was, and it was also more than just a worship, worshiping community, it was a state. But And then when it comes to civil law today, most societies actually affirm the, the, the second table. I can remember a piece in ESPN online. Somebody, uh, Greg Easterbrook was his name, wrote a piece about how what people really should be standing up for the six commandments, not the ten commandments, because he said that most people agree with the six commandments in the second table, um, and and that's you know, and I think there is there an overlap between um, natural law and revealed uh, God's special revelation, and the second table is an example of that. So I think most nations actually sort of get it; they apply that law differently, obviously. Um, but even in the case of something like abortion, uh, as as controverted as that subject is in America, and as much as I believe it's a sin, most of the people who defend a woman's choice will not call abortion murder because they believe murder's wrong. So they still have a sense that murder's bad, and they just – in this particular case, they don't think this is murder. So, But they still are acknowledging that murder's wrong. So even in the most – one of the most um, heinous forms of uh, sin that we might think of in public matters in America, they're still undergirding it, a notion of what murder really is and that it's something bad. Mm -hmm. So related to that is what would you see as the role of the civil government? Um, I would follow pretty much the bare outlines that Paul and Peter – prescribe in the New Testament as far as um, punishing evil and upholding um, good as much as possible, um, but not in the, in the any – and I, I believe that in sort of a moral way, so that people who are lawbreakers, they should be punished, and people who are law abiders, they should be affirmed or encouraged um, and, and certainly should not be um, treated unjustly. Um, and, of course, this depends in part on what the laws of the state are, but I think, generally speaking, the state, the way Paul and all the apostles, in fact, saw it, um, is – is should – well, they didn't see – I don't think they saw the state being a proponent of the Christian religion. Mm. Granted, it wasn't possible in their day. Um, they didn't see Constantine coming. Um but I'm not sure that they even thought that that would have been uh, the goal. And I know N.T. Wright has popularized the Lordship of Christ idea and that all the affirmations of Christ as Lord in the New Testament have a real political I, – you know, I, I sort of understand that. And I think there, there's something to that in part, but I don't think um, – I just don't see, um, given the kind of um, – even the eschatological perspective of Paul – um, and this distinction between the, the two ages and the things seen and the things unseen, that they were really looking for some sort of manifestation of God's redemptive blessing in within the civil government. What would be the civil government's guiding or governing principle, if, if there is such a thing? Um, well, as a cr- Christian, I would believe the state's principle is, is mainly to ensure some sort of public order. Um, and and again to restrain sin, or restrain wickedness, and and to uh, approve of uh, law abiding uh, or acts of law of abiding by the law. Um, and and in that that that's a great platform it seems to me for the church to carry out her work. And um, forms of tyranny that would restrict the church which is, again, what the apostles did, would call upon the church still to proclaim the gospel no matter what and suffer the consequences no matter what, which could mean martyrdom, as it did for um, the apostles and and many early Christians. Um, So just because the state – I don't expect the state to promote the Christian religion. I also don't expect expect the state to be neutral. I, I think the state will oppose it at times, and I think the church still has an obligation to proclaim the gospel and to carry out her work, and in those settings, she should break churches should break the law, and but not then say, I mean, they could try to pers- persuade as much as possible as Paul himself did, claiming his rights as a citizen of the Roman Empire. They c- could try to claim and persuade people that they're really 
doing something that's good for the state as well. Um, but if they if they can't persuade people of that and they are found guilty of breaking state law, then they need to suffer the, the consequences. And I think to do so in a way that honors honors God. Um, so I think that might answer. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. What is the proper role of a Christian who is a politician? I think the politician, because he or she takes an oath to uphold the laws of a particular polity, whether it be the United States, Pennsylvania, or Philadelphia, or Montgomery County in our cases here, um, they really have to weigh whether they can take that vow as Christians, or whether there might be something in that in those vows that would um, contradict their profession of faith. If they find that to be the case, then they cannot serve. Uh, and this is this is the great. Even though I disagree with Covenanters, I I find their position admirable throughout much of their history. That they actually said that their officers and church members could not serve in public office or vote in American politics because the Constitution did not recognize the Lordship of Christ. So they were willing to pay, pay a price for their convictions. I think it's unfair for Christians to say, um, no, the, the government should be a certain way. It should be a way that we think it should be, when in fact the government is already a certain way. And if Christians don't like it, they can try to correct it. And I think as citizens, they have that, they have that permission, certainly. Um, but they can't just expect it to be a certain way because they think it is and they, because they're citizens. It actually – they have to be law abiders and look at the laws on the books and <clears throat> and accept those laws if they're going to be citizens and politicians. And again, if it's a question of conscience that would pr- prohibit them from serving, then they should not. So that means that if a if Christian can actually look at the laws and say, I can serve in this way, then um, – then they have to go ahead, take make take the oaths of office, try to serve to the best of their ability in a way that serves the public. Though I mean, they they aren't there just to serve Christians; they're there to serve the to serve the wider public. And sometimes it means they will have to take off take off their hat as a Christian. And even though something might hurt the church, <clears throat> I could think, for instance, of tax policy. They, it might come a time where a Christian politician would actually vote for taxing church property. And I don't think that would be the worst thing. I can understand how it costs Christians something, but I do think that we've sort of gotten something of a free ride in the United States. Another one of those many anomalies of church-state relations in the United States. And I'm not advocating taxing churches, please don't get me wrong. But I could see a, a Christian politician say doing something and saying this would be a way to offset some of our our um, <clears throat> funding problems. And I know it's going to hurt my church, but it's something that our churches may be willing to do as well. But so it's it's possible for a Christian politician to do something that might be that might hurt the church and still be good for the polity. And I think Christian politicians really have to think of that way. But I think all of us do that in various capacities all the time. I think we're probably going to talk about vocation more, but. When, if I were a father and I had a party of children in my home, um, and I might see my son getting beat, beaten up by somebody at the party, and I might want to go over there and collar that kid who's beating up my son, but, but I also might treat it differently because this is kind of a public setting now with this party and the kids need to work it out in a certain way. So I will take off my hat as father and also be uh, a neighbor – or a, a a Christian father with a lot of other Christian kids there, and not simply act in my capacity as father. And so I, I think we do that a lot, and I think that's will, is something that a Christian politician will have to do. Related to that, um, what would be the the flip side, the responsibility of the Christian as a voter and as a citizen? Um, the since citizenship doesn't require oaths to those who are natural-born citizens. It does, of course, for people who are um, immigrants and who, who, um, who naturalize in that way. Um, there's, there's no kind of uh, calculation Christians have to make as far as taking a, a, an oath of citizenship 
which might be useful for us to do. But I, I mean, I think as citizens, um, Christians should be like any other citizen of the United States in the sense that they should know the laws, they should know how government works, they should figure out what sort of um, commitments, responsibilities, activities in which they want to engage. And certainly they they can and should apply certain of their own convictions to their selection of can to their votes, um, the way they vote. Um, but again, I, it seems to me that Christians have too often in the last 20 to 30 years voted for people who would be partisans of a Christian cause, and they haven't recognized that there's a larger public good that would isn't necessarily at odds with Christians or the church, but that is different from what Christians might value in the church. And I think Christians as citizens need to be willing to c- consider that at least, that there, there may be a good that is something that is of general benefit to all citizens, and that if Christians themselves were to have their own society, they may not put it that way. But as long as it's not a sin, they can go along with it. Um, and, and given how vast government now is, even at the local level, um, I actually don't think many Christians think through sin, holiness issues on every single aspect of public policy or legislation. And so then that gets to the big issues like gay marriage. I mean, all surrounding reproduction and marriage, which are are very big issues, um, not just in terms of um, the Seventh Commandment, um, but also in in terms of what is good for a healthy society. And it seems to me Christians should – it would be useful if Christians could think about public policy regarding family and marriage and fidelity – that would be good for all of American society, which would be a very different ethic, conceivably a different ethic, or certainly have a different basis from what a Christian Christian ethic regarding family life, fidelity, etc., would be. I mean, there are all sorts of studies to show that that marriage is intact, and all, and and divorce, all these all these different things have implications for a healthy society, and. And Christians, it seems to me, need to think in, t- in terms of a healthy society when they're thinking as citizens and not simply whether or not other citizens are breaking God's law because they're breaking God's law all the time because they're not Christians. They're do- I mean, if Christians are, were good works or filthy rags, how much more so are the supposedly good works of non-Christians really bad? So we're not in the, we're not in the capacity here of trying to get these people to please God. We're trying just to have a, a social political order that is conducive for us to live quiet and peaceable lives for the church to carry out our mission. Um, and even if those fellow Americans are good married people and good parents to their children, and we have laws to sustain all that, th- those things aren't going to merit God's favor in any way. So we shouldn't look at those sorts of policies, it seems to me, anyway, in terms of whether it breaks or violates God's law, because it's all really going to come up way short. But, um, but, but as approximate good, instead, instead of an ultimate good, it seems to make a lot more sense to, um, to work for ways that would have marriage policy or marriage laws that would um, help create a healthy society, whether or not it actually um, conforms to God's law. Uh, one last on this topic, sure. um, a little trickier. Uh, what is the re- what would be the responsibility of a Christian who's also in the military? Well, again, vows would be in order, and to examine those vows and whether they can take them. Um, I also think um, that wars of of of. Uh, of a foreign nature that would take Americans to other parts of the world, particularly places like the Middle East where there wouldn't be churches, um, and should should prompt Christians to be uh, careful about 
possibly careful in some ways about serving because will they have an opportunity to worship God in those contexts? Will they have pastoral oversight? Now, I know that there are military chaplains, but I also know that military chaplaincy is a very mixed bag. And it doesn't seem to me, I mean, if we could have a whole troop of Orthodox Presbyterians <laughs> going out with an pre- Orthodox Presbyterian minister, uh, that might be okay. You, there'll be one way of getting around it, but I don't see denominational mili- army operation. Um, so that's one level t- to be concerned about. Another level, of course, is just war. Um, here, I think Luther's, L- Luther wrote a marvelous essay in the early 1520s about to a uh, Christian soldier about base, seemingly sort of saying you can leave some of that high-end eth- ethical thinking to others and simply go into battle and knowing that even if you kill another Christian on the other side, you're trying to serve your, your Lord, and in the long run it's all going to work out in some higher good. So, But I do think you know aspects of just war theory, all those sorts of things are, are – um, are considerations that a Christian could bring to bear upon his his or her, dare I say her, service in the military. Um, now, I'm not wild about women in the military, nor am I wild about certain churches' stances about women mm-hmm. in the military. <laughs> Doug Wilson on the present applicability of the Mosaic Law to the Church. There are two basic ways you can go. One is you can say the Mosaic Law applies unless the New Testament says that it doesn't. Or you can say the Mosaic Law does not apply unless the New Testament says that it does. And I have more affinity with the former. I believe that the Mosaic Law is not the Word of God emeritus. I believe that it is still God's word for us, um, and we should be we should submit to it and obey it and seek to implement it. Having said that, I don't want to be like the fool messenger in the book of Proverbs who runs off to deliver the message before he understands what the message is. So I think we need to do a lot before we rush off, particularly before we rush off to implement in societal political ways what we believe the Old Testament say, we better be very sure that that's in fact what it says. Um, And probably the key mistake that is made here is that people look at the Mosaic Code and they want to, they ask, should we be implementing this law and this law and this law? Should we be putting parapets around the roofs of our houses? And should we be banning mixed fabrics, especially polyester? And and I could go with the polyester, but... uh, (laughs) but not on hermeneutical grounds. The uh, the thing that I w- would want to say is not we should not just implement the Mosaic Law in terms of its particular requirements, but what we need to fundamentally implement is the kind of law it is. It's a case law system. It's not a it's not a top down. Uh, here's here's a law co- code that anticipates every eventuality and then tries to make a law against it in advance. Rather, it's a case law, a common law system, where you have certain particulars that embody a principle, and you expect subsequent judges to identify that principle and uh, apply it without necessarily applying the the older form that it took. Um, would you make distinctions between different parts of the law? Yes, I would. Um, uh, I, I accept um, the, the Westminster the Westminsterian uh, distinction of moral, uh, judicial, and, and ceremonial um, as a rough, as a first rough cut. But you, there are problems because there are some ceremony. You know, there are some laws that are both. You know, the Sabbath law is um, um, both ceremonial and moral, for example. Um, and so you paint yourself into corners that way. Uh, I found a, a useful distinction that I've made is the difference between creational law and redemptive law. Uh, Creational law is law, obedience to which looks the same in every generation. When uh, a man who's refraining from stealing his neighbor's donkey 500 B.C. 
looks exactly the same as a man refraining from stealing his neighbor's donkey in 500 AD. Uh, it, the creation law looks the same. Redemptive law, um, it, the, the administration of it or the obedience to it looks quite different, although the principle is the same. So the ancient Jews kept the Passover in one way, and we keep the Passover a different way. We keep the Passover uh, by getting rid of the yeast of malice and wickedness, as Paul says. So would the applicability of the law change for the different distinctions that you've made? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I would not expect, um, j- just to run to the conclusion, I would not expect that you could take um, the way it looked in Moses' Israel, pick that law code up and drop it on 21st century uh, America. It, it would be an abuse not only of 21st century America, it'd be an, an abuse of the law. It, you're you're um, neglecting the history of redemption, you're, ne- you're forgetting the incarnation, you're forgetting the, the flow of the story. Uh, what what do you see as the role of the Ten Commandments in relation to uh, the present civil government, or to civil governments in general? Well, I, I think the civil government ought to begin by obeying the Ten Commandments, uh, particularly the one not, uh, the one about stealing. The the Ten Commandments, I, I believe, are the uh, a reflection of God's nature and character, and I believe that it is the civil government's responsibility to honor and follow the Ten Commandments, rightly understood. So, um, that being said, what do you see as the particular role of the civil government? What is, uh, and, and then what would its guiding or governing principle be? With regard to the Ten Commandments? Uh, well, not necessarily. Uh, what do you see okay. as the purpose and the, and the God-ordained role of the civil government? Um, Paul tells us in Romans 13 that it's to reward the righteous and punish the wrongdoer. And, and, and then you have to say, okay, what kind of wrongdoer do they punish? I, I, I would say that my fundamental um, political distinction when it comes to these issues is, is that I believe that it's mandatory that we distinguish sins from crimes. So, for example, I do not believe that the civil magistrate, magistrate has any business whatever trying to uh, eliminate or eradicate or minimize sin. Um, like the Tenth Commandment in the Ten Commandments, uh, the government ought not to be prohibiting or punishing or penalizing or fining covetousness. They're not competent to do that. But they should punish murder. They should deal with that sort of breach. So um, once you make the distinction between a sin and a crime, I believe that it's the civil government's role is to make it possible for... uh, my wife and I to walk across town safely at two in the morning. Uh, a slightly different question, but one that's related. Uh, what is the proper role of a, of a Christian who is a politician? <laughs> to, to make sure that he goes to heaven. <laughs> um, I would say that uh, it, it would matter. It would depend on whether he's a politician um, in a current secular setup like ours or a uh, politician in a, uh, uh, like an ideal Christian republic, that sort of thing. Um, a, a Christian politician today, let's say a Christian member of Congress today, ought to be salt and light, wanting to work, uh, work with um, and advance uh, the common good under the rubric of God's common grace while testifying to his colleagues and others that that's not sufficient. What about the, the uh, other side of that? What would be the responsibility of a Christian as a voter or as a, as a citizen of either our government now or in your, in your situation, you know, an, an ideal Christian republic? Yeah, the, uh, I think a Christian voter has to... Um, Probably the the central thing that I that I have a concern about with Christian Christians who get engaged to vote is that they they get engaged at the last minute and and, are, and oftentimes just vote the within the same basic range of options that their secularist counterparts do. So, you know, so uh, evangelical Christians tend to be more conservative on the political spectrum. They tend to be a little more right wing, but that the whole right wing left wing 
spectrum, I think, is problematic. Because I, I really do believe that the Christian church represents a, a new way of being human in the world, and we ought not to just be tagging behind the Republican Party, uh, you know, doing the heavy, lift, heavy lifting for them. So um, I, would, I would want Christians to be more fully informed on the, on the theological underpinnings of, of our understanding of how the church and how Christ relates to culture generally. So they know, they know what they're doing all the time, not just when they vote. So when they, when they go to work, when they're, when they're diligent in their vocations, when they worship the Lord on the Lord's Day, and when they vote, they should be rowing in the same direction with all of those activities. And one final question under this, this heading. Um, what would be the responsibility of a Christian who also serves in the military? Well, as I've counseled people who are preparing to go in the military, I've, I've told them that you, you are going into a, um, an institution which is, does not explicitly honor Jesus Christ or his authority uh, and, wants to, um, and, and does not want to acknowledge that authority. And you're doing so as a Christian, and you're going to be dealing with life and death issues, obviously, in the military. That means you have to have worked out in your mind fully uh, what issues are tripwire issues for you. Uh, what issues are you willing to ruin your career over? Uh, you know, if, if you're commanded to participate in a war crime, let's say, or if you're commanded to, um, uh, to implement the Pentagon's new policy on, on homosexuality or, you know, and you're, you're a Christian officer punishing a Christian enlisted man for uh, <laughs> presenting the gospel to uh, a homosexual, let's say. Um, you've got to have that worked out in your mind. It's sort of I, I think of Christian worldview thinking often as as being like like playing baseball, playing softball. Um, you're const- if you're playing shortstop, you're constantly thinking, um, okay, a man on first and second. If the ball comes to me, I go to third. If the ball is a pop up, I do this. You've got you're doing contingency planning all the time, all the time, and that's what I would encourage people. Um, who are going into the military or any huge sec, you know, it, it could be a huge secular corporation or anything like that. You've got to have your contingencies mapped out beforehand. Nelson Klosterman. The applicability of the Mosaic Law to the Church today. Well, of course, um, I, I quickly run to the classic distinction among the laws in the Mosaic Covenant between ceremonial, civil, and, and uh, moral. And uh, I confess with the Belgic Confession and the Westminster Confession regarding the um, the preliminary, provisional nature of the ceremonial laws. I uh, I tend to avoid talking about ceremonial laws as abolished. They're rather fulfilled in Jesus Christ, such that their use is abolished. The Belgic is very clear and careful on that one. So we can still learn from the ceremonial laws, and we can still use the substance of the ceremonial laws as Christians today. That's a, that's a position not clearly articulated, I think, clearly enough. With regard to the judicial laws, of course, the Westminster has, has um, coined the phrase equity. Not They didn't coin it, but they used the phrase equity, and I find that attractive and helpful. The equity, that is the pith, the principle of the civil or rather judicial laws in the Old Testament, the Church can um, declare them, the Church can uh, advance them, promote these principles of the judicial law, and the Church can do that from the pulpit. Christians can do that in their own lives. Uh, to the extent they're able, to the extent that they can uh, gain a hearing. And um, with regard to the moral law, of course, I believe that the Ten Commandments specifically uh, continue to be binding or normative for the life of the Church in the world and for the life of the world. Um, it, it was Skilder who made the observation that God's law is the only glove that fits the hand of creation. 
a metaphor that by which he meant to say that God's law is is uh, tuned. It's fine-tuned and it's designed and it's given in terms of created reality. And so there's no competition or conflict between so-called natural law and the moral law. Moreover, I find both tables of the law to be normative and to be, uh, to be relevant today. How how those commandments are made relevant and how they, their normativity is expressed is the great debate. Yes, yes, yes. And that leads me to the question, what is the role of the Ten Commandments in relation to the civil government? Well, um, I, I recently finished teaching a section, um, uh, an evening class, popular evening class, on the, the Decalogue through the eyes of John Calvin, and went through each of the commandments and ended up with a, kind of a summary discussion with the students, the students in that class, about the relevance of the first table as well as the second. I find that the Mosaic or the Ten Commandments are uh, normative for the civil government, that is, such things as do not kill, do not commit adultery, etc. Um, but the first table is also normative insofar as governments are called to recognize the first table of the law. They're not called to enforce it. In other words, we, we're not pleading for a Constantinianism here, where people are at the point of the sword, commanded to honor the, and, and bow to the one true God. But uh, I, I use the verb recognize in a very purposeful way. The state is called to recognize the authority, that, the, that its authority comes not um, simply or first of all from the people, but that it comes from, from God. Now, how the civil government acknowledges and recognizes that, again, is a, great, is a big question. And I would suggest that um, minimally, minimally the government, the civil government, can, in its constitutional documents, much like we have in the United States, acknowledge God to be the source of liberty and uh, the protector of liberty as well. So you've alluded to this, but but what is the role of the civil government then? Well, with regard to the Ten Commandments, um, the role is to create, um, not create, to maintain, rather, um, as much... Uh, positive room for obedience to these commandments as as possible. Now, in our day and age, we'd like to speak about pluralism. There are not everybody's a Christian, and the Christian religion isn't the only one on the block. So, I would suggest that it is also the responsibility of the civil government to protect the right of people to worship and to worship according to their conscience. Um, there shouldn't be necessarily a preference with regard to uh, Christianity uh, being uh, a state religion, but um, there should be uh, a recognition of the, the benefit, the heritage, the legacy of, uh, of Christianity, the Christian worldview in terms of public life. And um, the role of civil government is to maintain very simply, to maintain justice according to the standard, then, that's been given us in, in the Ten Commandments, I would think. Now, uh, what would be the proper role of a Christian who is also a politician? Well, um, you know, the famous definition of politics as the art of compromise um, requires Christians, I think, to be, um, to be very... Um, Adroit, very facile, and adept at um, seeing opportunity for um, crafting legislation in in the face of competing competing demands, um, but at the same time recognizing the incompatibility of certain demands. For example, Christian politicians today, it seems to me, um, cannot say both that uh, marriage between male and a female and marriage between members of the same sex are equally valid as as institutions. I don't think Christians can say that. So now that becomes very very difficult. Are there ways in which we can legally then accommodate some of the demands that are being pressed upon us from uh, the so-called homosexual marriage lobby? And I, I, I think there are ways to do this. For example, um, we have loaded marriage with a lot of political and economic preferences preferences 
that I'm not sure ought to obtain. You take matters of hospital visitation and so on. You see, what what is being claimed uh, is that people want the same rights, homosexuals want the same rights as heterosexuals with regard to such things. And to get those rights, they move in the direction of sanctioning homosexual marriage. Well, there's another way to go, and that would be to empty heterosexual marriage of preferential uh, status and and preferential uh, options. I think that's a better way to go. And, and, And Christian politicians, I think, need to articulate things like that. Um, I think that Christian politicians have a calling as well to champion uh, the positive, uh, the positive call to moral uprightness, to virtue, etc. Uh, in the abortion debate, for example, for every for every bit of rhetoric which decries abortion as as wrong, I think there ought to be as much rhetoric favoring. Things like uh, shepherding homes, compassion, the the creating laws that that assist unwed mothers and make it possible for them to carry their children to term and make that desirable. I think we need that kind of positive uh, talk. So you know, when you ask what is the role of a Christian politician, it is to artfully craft uh, political policy, public policy, on the basis of his witness and walk in line with the scriptures. Now, what about the flip side of that? What would be the responsibility of a Christian as a voter? Well, here too, I think, uh, as voters, uh, Christians, I think, need to um, publicly and uh, articulately express their desire for the kinds of politicians I just described earlier. Unfortunately, um, I'm afraid that Christians uh, settle for what's available and then lock into what is closest to their own position, rather than seeking to uh, publicly articulate a, po- um, a political desire uh, from the base of their worldview. Uh, sadly, we're given the choice of a Democrat or a Republican, and unfortunately, too often there's little difference between these in terms of, say, something like fiscal policy, or something like a social policy, et cetera. The, the choices are, do not leave us happy. And I think, I think Christians shouldn't get started at the voting booth with their unique contribution to public discussion. The Christians need to be engaged, not in a polemical or hostile way, but in a, in a positive way to offer um, political alternatives. I think, for example... Uh, Christians should have been in the in the in the forefront of of talking about uh, debt, debt, you know, warning the American people about the dangers of debt and the positives of uh, fiscal stewardship and responsibility. Now that requires a platform, that requires media, and I, I incidentally, by the way, I want to throw in a plug here and a, a word of deep, deep appreciation for World Magazine. I think World Magazine is uh, is one such vehicle that uh, Christians can use to express um, a positive alternative. And I happen to think that World Magazine is listened to. It's read by, by people who, uh, who need to, to know these things in Washington and elsewhere. And our, our third element or type of person under our heading of politics, what would be the responsibility of a Christian as a military officer or, milita- or someone who serves in the military? Well, here I think we need to begin with the notion of um, of having sworn an oath of of allegiance to the United States government. Um, a military person, for that matter, any government employee, but a military person um, has sworn an oath to uphold uh, the Constitution, to defend the Constitution, to defend the country, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not. I don't have the wording of the oath in front of me, but. Um, a Christian needs to be clear that he or she, first of all, may take and make such an oath, and then once having made such an oath, then they have to follow it in terms of its consequences as well. In other words, um, it's you, you can't have reservations, you can't you can't uh, pull any punches later by saying, "Well, I know I promised you know to serve my country, but I won't in this instance." No, no, you've got to, you know, it's a, it's a fiduciary, it's a third commandment issue <laughs> with regard to taking the Lord's name in vain, and with regard to the ninth commandment, um, you know, the oath 
was a very, very controversial controversial item during the time of the Reformation. And I think the Reformers uh, uniformly stood on the side of the legitimacy, the permissibility of an oath to the government. But then I think today, um, given our individualism, sometimes we we think that individual conscience trumps uh, promise-keeping. And I think we have to be very careful with that. So the Christian in the military has sworn to uphold certain things, and uh, their testimony now hinges on their fidelity to their word. This concludes our first round discussion on politics. Remember, in rounds two and three, each of the participants will be able to criticize the views of the other participants. Uh, But in the meantime, you can visit reformedforum.org to hear more from us. Here are other programs, including the Reformed Media Review and Historia Ecclesia. If you would like to get a hold of us, please mail us, email us at mail at reformedforum.org. We're also available on Twitter at Reformed Forum. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.